0: Hi, coaches, and welcome to a bonus episode of the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast. I'm Dave Mullins, COO of the ITA. Uh, Today, my special guest is Arthur Bryant. So this isn't necessarily a topic we really enjoy discussing or bringing to light, but it's definitely an important one for all of us to hear and remain vigilant through these rapidly changing times in the world of college athletics. Many of you will have seen Arthur Bryant's name mentioned in stories about reinstated college programs throughout the COVID pandemic. The National Law Journal has twice named him one of the 100 most influential attorneys in America. Recently, he's led groundbreaking settlements at eight universities that announced they were eliminating women's varsity intercollegiate athletic teams. He's also led a historic settlement, the first Title IX victory for male student athletes, with Clemson University reinstating men's track and field and cross country in April 2021. In this podcast, we discuss some possibilities as to why tennis was singled out for elimination during the early days of COVID, his advice for insulating your college tennis program from threats, what you should do if you were ever to be told that your program has been eliminated, and some advice on leading high-performing organizations. I hope you enjoy learning from Arthur as much as I did. Arthur, Brian, thanks so much for joining me on the ITA College Tennis Coaches podcast.
1: Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, so Arthur, usually I'm, I'm interviewing college tennis coaches on this, this podcast, and they're sharing their thoughts and wisdom experience with other coaches. But I think, um, you know, this is a very important conversation we're, we're about to have, obviously, uh, in the new cycle. For the last couple of years, we've seen sports programs eliminated kind of one after the other. We've seen a lot of tennis programs, unfortunately, eliminated It's out of the news cycle now things are a little bit um you know calmer and i guess we're getting back to normal to whatever normal is but we can't forget uh you know what's just happened and and there's lessons to be learned there and not a topic that i think you know many people want to talk about but i think we have to talk about and and be vigilant for the next time something like this comes around hopefully we don't have another global pandemic for another 100 years or so but there's gonna be another economic downturn you know, every eight to 12 years or so. And, and during those recessions, athletic departments are looking to make some cuts and we wanna insulate ourselves from that as much as possible. But before we get into all that, Arthur, can you share a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved with helping the reinstatement of eliminated college sports teams?
1: Sure. In 1985, I was the lead counsel in trial for the first Title IX case in the country against a school for eliminating its women's team um, and for discriminating against women in violation of temple law, the case was called Hatter versus Temple University. We tried the case for three weeks and at the end of the three weeks, Temple agreed to treat its women and men equally. After that, whenever a school would eliminate a woman's team, and it was almost always a woman's team because schools were discriminating against women, I would get a call, and I would go and see the school and say, "Look, do the smart thing here. Just put the women's team elimination back. If you're violating Title IX. If I go to court, I'm going to get an immediate court order requiring you to put it back while I go to trial. It'll, you'll still have to pay all the money you say you're going to save. Yeah. But in the meantime, if you don't do it voluntarily, I'm going to bring a class action." On behalf of all the women athletes and potential athletes in the school, for all of the ways in which you are discriminating against them, which we both know is likely every aspect of your intercollegiate athletic program. And instead of just having the cost of this team continue, you're going to have to spend millions to start treating your men and women equally. Be smart, put the team back. School after school did that until 1992 when Brown University decided it wanted to. Come and the case went just like we told them it was going to go. We beat them at every single turn. Um, We got the teams that was trying to eliminate reserve. Um, They ended up ultimately fighting with us up and down in the courts, making new law all around the country to help women and advance Title IX. We go to trial and at the trial, on the eve of trial, they agree to treat women and men equally. And when the trial is held, they want to fight about skill participation opportunities. And the judge not only forces them to continue the women's teams they're trying to eliminate, but it forces them to upgrade from club to varsity status several other women's teams. Mm. Again, they appeal. Again, we win on everything. The United States Supreme Court denies review. And six years after we see them, um, we ultimately reach a settlement. Now, we don't know for sure, but we are told back then that they've ended up spending over 3 million more a year uh, for the women to treat them equally. We're told their legal fees were over $3 million. We know they had to pay our legal fees of over a million dollars, and that was back in the 1990s. And on top of that, Ms. Magazine named the president of Brown University, the Male Chauvinist Pig of the Year, um, and gave him a big award. Um, So from then on, whenever the school would eliminate a woman's team, I would go and say, here's your choice. You can either put the teams back and get into compliance with Title IX, or you can be like Brown University. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And pretty much all of them put them back. In fact, what happened for the most part is schools stopped eliminating women's teams until the past year and a half or so when it all heated back up. Right.
0: Right. And do you have a sense of, of just how many teams you've had a hand in saving at this point, Arthur? I don't have a precise count, but I would say at least 40. Okay, wow. Yeah, and you think of, you multiply that by all the, the student athletes and, and future student athletes as well. It's not just the current teams, it's the future teams as well. But Arthur, with all the programs that were being cut during COVID, do you think these sports were already slated to be eliminated you know, and the athletic departments were just looking for the first opportunity to do so? Or was it less deliberate than that and maybe an overreaction to the situation? Or what's your take on that?
1: First, I'd say it seems to vary a great deal from school to school. Uh, Second, I think it's clear that some of the schools already had in mind to eliminate at least some of the teams they've had Other schools were simply responding to circumstances, uh, sort of freaking out about what money they might lose because of COVID, et cetera. And then there also seems to be some some kind of a movement among a group of athletic directors that forget about looking at uh, athletics as actually an extracurricular activity in an educational institution, but instead that their job was to make money and they should view it as business and they should put all of their resources into football and men's basketball and maybe women's basketball with the hope that somehow those teams would generate money and everything else do the least possible, both in terms of participation opportunities and in terms of supporting the teams, uh, because they wouldn't bring in money. So it a, a was a wide mix, I would say.
0: Yeah. And yeah, I mean, is it is it purely down to finances? Again, in in your experience, uh, I think our coaches are really interested to know, you know, how are athletic departments deciding exactly which sports to cut? You know, what factors are they taking? Is it that they're just trying to get it to a certain amount of dollars? And it's like, okay, let's figure out which teams combine to, to get to that dollar amount. Or are there other factors that they take into account, such as winning and losing or involvement in the community or graduation rates, GPAs. I mean, do you have any sense of that?
1: I have some sense of that, but it's limited because uh, some of the schools are more open about what they're doing and others are much more closed. Mm -hmm. Usually it's not just money um, in terms of income, because most of the, almost all the teams are losing money. I mean, it's not supposed to be a business. They're not supposed to be, you know, making a huge profit off of these teams. And even with the myths around football, the truth is is almost over 95% of the schools in this country lose money on football. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's amusing. They call it a revenue-producing sport, which means they can bring in some money um, from people who pay to attend, but they lose much more money than they make, so it's certainly not popular. But yes, there are some schools that look at that, schools that do look at win-loss records, schools that do look at the quality of the support in the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, It depends from school to school as to how they're making the decisions. One of the really disturbing pieces in the recent year and a half is several schools, instead of going out to the community and saying, if it is a financial problem, we have a financial crunch. Help us figure out how to solve it with the people who support the teams. Instead, what they do is they go into a private room, they do a private analysis. They don't let anybody know what they're up to and they simply come out and announce it. Just wanting y'all know, we've decided we're cutting five teams. Here's who you are. Don't try to argue with it. You know, Don't make any issue about it. It's a done deal. Mm -hmm. And often they're made on the basis of bad data. They're made for improper reasons. They violate the law, in particular Title IX. And you're just wondering, what are these people thinking and why are they approaching the problem this way when it's such a huge mistake?
0: Right. Yeah, it truly is a failure in leadership in in a lot of cases. And, um, yeah, I mean, just trying to, uh, and and again, uh, this this might be repetitive, Arthur. Apologies if it is, but we we saw with tennis that tennis was eliminated almost twice as much as the next sport, which I believe was men's soccer, and um, that's that's a frightening number uh, for everybody in in the tennis industry as a whole, not just within college tennis, and, and very scary for the ITA, the USTA and all our all our member coaches, obviously, but. Is there anything in particular you think with tennis um, that, that made it, uh, I guess, somewhat attractive to these athletic departments to cut? Is it uh, anything to do with the number of international student athletes? Is it anything to do with um, just the that it you know smaller rosters, so there may be impacting fewer student athletes they believe in their mind compared to a team that maybe has thirty or thirty-five. Folks, on it again, why, why tennis in your opinion?
1: It's not clear to me. I think some of the factors you mentioned are possible explanations. Uh, to the extent they're international students and it's a higher cost of athletic financial aid that might factor into it. But I will say most schools that are eliminating teams and, and I've only been involved in two so far where they were cutting tennis, The decision seems to be affected a great deal by how much support there is for the school in the student body and in the parental and alumni body and how much influence the school supporters have with the board, et cetera. Um, So if tennis coaches wanted to be looking at how do I make sure my team isn't on the cutting block? They would wanna make sure their team is very popular among the students, among the alumni, among the supporters, that the supporters are actually uh, speaking up the program. They're giving money in support of the program. Uh, they want to make it so the school looks at it and says, We don't want to cut this team because it would be a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, we've seen that in the reactions as well. Um, University of St. Thomas in Minnesota cut its men's and women's swimming pool. Now the women had a Title IX case, straight out blatant violation of Title IX for the school to eliminate the women's team because the uh, university was not providing women anywhere near equal opportunities to participate. But the men's team, um, while they didn't have a Title IX claim, still had it Huge opportunity to fight for reinstatement um, if they garnered the resources, if they gathered their supporters, and you know let the school know why it was such a big mistake. It unfortunately the team sort of dissipated, and it did not come back. The contrast at a school like that compared to uh, East Carolina University where it came back. Um, or more e- easily uh, when Dartmouth changed its decision and agreed to reinstate the women's teams that it had to put back because of Title IX. Mm-hmm. Dartmouth within a week announced it was putting back all the men's teams uh, mm. because it realized that it just made a huge mistake. What's driving these decisions um, to eliminate teams could in different schools, it's different things but it really is up to the coaches and the supporters of the teams uh, to convince the schools they're making a mistake if it comes to them.
0: And when you say Dartmouth, are you referencing UMass Dartmouth? Uh, is that correct rather than uh, Dartmouth University?
1: Oh no, it was Dartmouth College. Um, on, um, in December of 2020, uh, Dartmouth announced it was eliminating its women's varsity golf and swimming and diving teams, along with its men's golf, lightweight rowing and swimming and diving teams. Okay. The women's team has had claims for re... Basically, the elimination of the women's teams was a blatant violation of Title IX. Mm-hmm. Uh, the team uh, retained me and Bailey and from my law firm. We threatened to sue. Within a month, um, the school announced that it was putting back women's teams and it had to because it was violating Title IX. And within a month of that, it announced it was putting back the men's teams, too.
0: Right. OK, thanks for clarifying that. And, sure. and Arthur, that that's yeah, that's. When I speak with coaches who are, are in this position, um, they have a very difficult job in terms of balancing. um. You know, fighting for the program and keeping their job because they might get the they might be called into the athletic director's office say in october and be told this is your last year of, of the program we're cutting the men's team get through the season you know through next may and then we're cutting the program and the coach is trying to keep their job but also wants to fight um so does that are should they be working behind the scenes or what steps should be they, they be taking, especially on the men's side who, who don't have the Title IX option? What would be your advice for, for a coach that finds himself in that situation?
1: Well, I would say first, if you're a coach who finds yourself in that situation, you've already learned that you didn't do everything you should. Because if the school has deciding to eliminate any teams, you don't want it to be your team. You should know up front when you're working there's always a risk there unless you're the coach of the football team or maybe the men's basketball team for mm-hmm. every other team there's a risk the school could decide to eliminate it's not how it should be but that's the reality so coaches should be working to spread the popularity of their team to spread the support for their team to have you know the university understand how important the team is to the school how have, have alumni supporting the team, et cetera, before there's any decision to make. Then when there's an announcement that the team is being cut, how the coach should approach it, I guess depends on the individual case-by-case basis. But no one, as long as they do it respectfully um, and appropriately, no one is going to look askance at a coach who is fighting to preserve his team, not so much for his job, but because he believes in the sport and because he's dedicated to his students. He wasn't just hired to coach the kids for a year and then disappoint the heck out of them <laughs> at the end of the year. Um, you know, he's committed to tennis um, because of what it makes, the difference it makes to kids' lives um, and as an aspect of it, an educational opportunity for the students. So, yes, the coach should, as much as possible, um, be reaching out and doing everything they can. Sometimes it will have to be behind closed doors if the university is that heavy-handed. Sometimes it should be out and open and above board. But coaches need to both take the steps to make sure the teams won't be cut before any decision is made, but also take the steps to try to preserve their teams if they are Mm eliminated.
0: And and what might that be, that, that checklist? So I'm a coach, the athletic director calls me in, has that conversation with me. I've found out my program's going to be eliminated. What, what are the first three or four things I should be doing the, the second I leave that office?
1: Well, before you leave that office, you want to find out why. I mean, mm-hmm. what's the reason? Because if it is money, which it, often it would be, it's well how much money? And if I could raise enough money um, or work with parents or alumni to get a commitment of the money, you know, how much do we need? What difference would that make? Second is have they looked at the legal issues? In each of the cases that we've gotten involved, the elimination of the team was a very clear violation of Title IX. It bought the school a huge amount of trouble and very bad publicity. They were discriminating against their women athletes um, where tennis was involved. And they not only were forced to reinstate the teams, they were forced to agree to provide women equal treatment and benefits and equal athletic financial aid throughout the program. So coach should be saying to the athletic director, have you checked the Title IX? Or if they're outside and the door is already closed on them, they need to be looking. What are the legal options right away? Is there um, a case for gender discrimination under Title IX? Is there, are the justifications being given for eliminating just, you know appropriate and accurate or not? In school after school, we've found the decisions were made on the basis of bad economic things. Mm. Are they thinking there's just no no one will care? And if that's what they think, then show them there are people who care and are going to apply a bunch of
0: questions. Arthur, is there a question I didn't ask you that I should have? Or is there any oh, uh, any sure. last bits of advice you'd have for coaches around this topic?
1: I want to be clear that the way I have gotten these teams reinstated, really stable and the way I have made such a difference in college sports, is all through enforcing Title IX. Coaches need to know what Title IX says and the difference it can make to their athletes and to their programs. Mm -hmm. So do athletic directors, so do school administrators. Title IX is a federal civil rights law. It's about equality, plain and simple. Title IX says that every educational institution that receives federal funds is barred from discriminating on the basis of sex. Now, every school in the country receives federal funds. Even if it doesn't do so directly, it does so because in colleges and universities, there are students with Pell Grants or other federal financial aid. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the entire school is covered by Title IX, which means the school cannot discriminate on the basis of sex, period. Now, Title IX has made an enormous difference in the 49 years since it was passed, there are now graduate school programs, for example, open to women that were closed. There are math and science classes that were closed to women that are now open. There are teaching opportunities that were closed to women that are uh, now open. But the place it's gotten the most visibility is sports because sports is the one area in, it, in the entire educational institution that can be legally separated on the basis of sex there are separate programs for men and women. And we, because there are separate programs for men and women, what Title IX basically says is, the separate program for men and the separate program for women have to offer women and men equal opportunities to play, equal athletic financial aid, and equal treatment and benefits. period. It's not a complicated analysis. It's are we treating the men and women equally? Are we giving them the same opportunities and the same athletic financial aid? So Tennis coaches, as well as administrators, as well as all the other coaches, need to be saying, are we providing men and women equal treatment and benefits, athletic financial aid, and opportunities in our programs? If they're not, and many, many schools are not, they're in violation of Title IX and need to get in compliance as quickly as possible. Now, sometimes in tennis, because there are men's and women's tennis teams, you can look at the teams in isolation and say, well, at least are we treating the women and men equally. But actually under Title IX, the analysis focuses on the programs as a whole. So if a school is treating the 100 men on its football team and the 15 men on its men's basketball team like gods and the rest of the men not so well, unless it is treating almost all the men way better than the rest of those men or a bunch of the women, a similar number equally well as the football players and the basketball players, the school is likely in bi- violation of Title IX. That's why when they eliminate women's teams, they're walking into trouble because they're already likely discriminating against the women. But it is the coach's responsibility at the first level to be pushing first to make sure the school is in compliance with Title IX, isn't discriminating on the basis of sex, or race or national origin or any of those things. But second, if a decision is made to cut teams, that the school is not making the problem worse by discriminating against people on the basis
0: of the cut. Thank you. That's very, very clear, Arthur. Just One last question before I let you go, because I think our coaches are always fascinated to learn from individuals who have been successful in in other industries. And I think sometimes other industries look at look at sports and coaches and athletes and try and learn from them. But during your time as the executive director of the public justice organization, you grew its size, scope of work, budget by some pretty uh, significant margins. Um, What have you learned maybe about talent acquisition, management of people? Developing a winning culture that, that you could share with our coaches, or, or pick maybe one of those that, that you, you could share some of your experience.
1: Well, I would say, first, the single most important thing, which won't provide, which will not surprise any of the coaches, is recruiting. Truly top outstanding workers or players, um, studies have shown, can accomplish five times more than a sort of average worker or presumably player. And so the first thing you want to do is be recruiting as many superstars as you can. Second, it is critical to develop a sense of teamwork, even in tennis where there are superstars. These are tennis teams. And if you recruit a superstar who's a jerk, you know, or you treat that superstar like he or she gets special treatment and um, is better than the rest of the team, it's going to destroy things. If you're trying to build a team that succeeds, you have to build teamwork among the two. And you have to enforce very strongly in the sense that we treat people with consideration and respect. We encourage them rather than discourage them. Uh, that we're trying to make this whole exercise fun. Yeah, we wanna win, of course. Yes, we in at public justice. It's, yes, we wanna fight for justice. Yes, we want to win the battles in court, just like in tennis, you want to win the competitions, but you want to have fun doing it. You want to have a sense of teamwork and accountability and that you're all in this together, not like, yes, we're going to go fight for this. You're all in your own. Go In my experience, you know, the best managers and the best coaches that's
0: the point of the well, Arthur, thank you so much for all your, your work on behalf of all coaches and student athletes, not just in tennis, but in all sports. Thank you for, for all that you've done and will continue to do for hopefully many decades to come. Uh, really appreciate your time today. And I've learned a lot from this. So thank you.